You're listening to IEPs and more with Kathy Greco. Answering your questions and talking to parents and professionals in the field of care and education of kids and young adults. Welcome to IEPs and more. I'm Kathy Greco, and today I'm talking to Leslie. Leslie is a parent, an advocate, a person who is seriously committed to supporting and educating parents who are new to the IEP special education process. I think you will really enjoy the information she has to share. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Kathy. You've been working with parents for a long, long time in trying to support and educate them. Yes. And I know that you have really focused on helping parents who are new to the system. Yes. Right? Yes. And oftentimes we find parents who are new to the system when their kid is in third, fourth, fifth, or eighth grade, right? Yes. Some even in high school. Absolutely. And they don't really realize what their child has been struggling with since birth. Absolutely. And I would like to talk to you about your experience in what parents might look for in, in a toddler. What, what, what kinds of things would raise a red flag for a parent to at least get it on their radar to start asking more questions? When you have a, a baby, what kinds of things have you noticed that babies might do that might cause a parent to think twice and to maybe probe a little further? Absolutely. I think even with babies, you can notice some things that if you have another child that you didn't notice the first time or that others might point out to you. And certainly the most important thing is that you love and accept that baby. But there are things as a parent that sometimes when you look back, you recognize like, oh, now I could see how that plays part of her anxiety. You don't hear a lot of parents talking about anxiety in babies or in toddlers. And there are things where you can see behaviors that will sometimes turn into that. And so early on, you might look at the connection that that baby would have with parents and siblings. Absolutely. And for example, sometimes these kids can, although that There are many people in their lives, whether that's grandparents or nannies or even the the father versus the mother, these kids tend to have a primary person that is needed. Even if there's four people sitting around, it's that person that they need to connect with because you can tell they're trying to say something. That's their safety. That's their safety. That's their go-to. So even though they might be in a family gathering, in a small family gathering, where it's not overwhelming, 
people they're very familiar with, even live in the same house with, when they are in that space, and even when they're not, just in the normal course of their life, the main person, they target their energies, their needs, their wants, their desires to that primary person where they feel the most understood and connected, correct? Absolutely. And that understanding and watching is what can be those first signs of what's going on. Because behavior in babies is language. They can't speak, but they do tell us things in their needs and wants and behaviors. And those behaviors in everyone. Yes. Communication. Behavior is functional communication. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they do it from infancy, right? They hand you this baby, they cry, they, they need you. You learn all of those cues that doesn't stop when they, you know, aren't infants, they just develop over time. And those behaviors will always be their first form of communication. They don't go away. And so that primary parent becomes necessary. Like a security blanket. Like a security blanket. Yes. There's something I call the koala cling, which with this type of baby, you almost have to pry their hands off of this primary person to get them to go to that other parent or to sit with a grandparent. It is not a separation type of behavior that you would see. It is a, I need to be on you and hold on as tight as I can because this is how I'm safe in this world. Like clinging on for dear life. Clinging on for dear life. Yes. Like like that primary person is the breath source. Absolutely. That's such a good way of putting it because as a parent, you can feel like, oh my gosh, like I I just need five minutes to breathe. But for that infant, you're breathing for them. You're breathing with them. And that world, for whatever reason, is feeling unsafe to them. And so that's why they cling to that primary person even more. What do you notice or what have you observed in relationship to how these babies, kids, toddlers act in a social situation? What I have noticed is that these tend to be kids that if you're at a birthday party, let's say with an older sibling, or as they, even babies, if you go to another first birthday party, let's say, these are kids who stay with that primary person. They sit in their lap. They watch what's going on. They're seeing the other kids, but they are taking their time to monitor what's going on in this environment. They can sometimes be the kids where you hear the parents say, it's always the last 20 minutes of the party that you're ready to play. And you've been there for three hours. It takes them a long time to survey what they're comfortable with. And if I leave this person, am I going to be safe out there? What can I do that is going to work? It takes them 
the majority of that time to come up with that. And to then assess the surroundings assess and assess them. kind of how they could engage in it, even though it's not safe, right? right. Because they're leaving their safety. Right. But if they're going to participate on some level, which I'm sure they want to, right? All the other kids are having fun. They're playing, whatever's going on there. This child can't just run into the deep end of a swimming pool. Gotta, gotta assess every step. Gotta make sure how I'm going to do it and plan for the least stressful route to get there. Absolutely. And that's key, the least stressful route, because a lot of the times when they do separate out, they will go into an activity that is near, but not with the group that's playing. Like parallel play. Parallel play. Now, one of the things, if a parent notices that happening for their child, that would be really beneficial and something we, we do a lot in schools when we're working with these kids is start an activity with that child that's going to engage the other kids to come to them. If all the kids are playing pin the tail on the donkey, I don't know what kids play, (laughs) but this kid is doing something that's really exciting to the other kid. The other kids gravitate. So it takes the stress of having to enter a group, but you have to tell the other adults what you're doing so that everyone is on the same page and understanding, hey, my kid needs a little more support and really wants to participate in this, but it's very difficult. And if you don't mind, here's a great way that will help my child acclimate, right? Absolutely. The entering and exiting of situations can be a high stress uh, endeavor for these kids. And that is a very typical thing that you see. They are, that is, that's why they stay with that primary person longer. If you wanted to have a couple of other moms and children, babies over, maybe you keep something like the blocks and then you bring that out to your child And then the other children will want to come and participate. And what that does is it strengthens that entrance into the group into a way that is very organic. And these kids can feel much more comfortable having that happen. And then if someone changes the activity, they will follow along. Because they're already part of the group. Yes. And they didn't have to enter a group. The group wanted to come to them and we used to do, I haven't done it in a long time, but to have a lot of kids in elementary school who had real social issues, right? Mm -hmm. And so in order to start to organically, as you say, build those relationships with other kids, we would have a behaviorist come during lunch and recess Mm -hmm. and start with the student a game that everybody wanted to play, whether it's four square or whatever, and make it look so fun and engaging that other kids couldn't wait to get in and be a part of it. 
then the child who we're trying to help feels like, oh, these kids want to be with me and they want to do what I'm doing. And so that lowers the anxiety. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and with babies, you can see this in your mommy and me classes. They usually sit around in a circle. A few babies will crawl to the center and yours will tend to stay right close to you and not engage. So if you can do something with that baby to have bring the others over, it's a great way of getting that baby more comfortable with the changes, with transitions, with flexibility. Those are things that are not always instinctual. You know what, just talking to you, I have this idea that I think would be a great idea that, you know, I always think my ideas are great (laughs) ideas. I don't have any kids. So what the heck? But maybe if you were running a mommy and me class, like you say, maybe every baby, every attendee would take a turn in being the primary baby in starting something and then having the others join them so that everyone has that experience of doing something that others want to join. And it makes it more natural then for them to join others' activities. Absolutely. And you can see sometimes mommy and me groups that might be your community groups, you'll go from house to house. You can really do that process if that group functions in that way. But you could do it anywhere. Anywhere. But if you're in a more structured environment... Sometimes, you know, through the preschool or whatever it might be. Right, because they're running their own program. Absolutely. To do that, to discuss that as a group, to bring that up could be incredibly helpful for some of these kids. And also watch, monitor your baby, see how things are going. Because sometimes these mommy and me groups can have 10 babies in them. 10 babies when you're six months old, nine months old might be too much for your baby. So if you can find a two or three other moms that you could meet with to start the process in a smaller environment where there's not so much going on, because sometimes that sensory stimulation that they're getting from 10 babies in a room can just put them right into the freeze zone where it's like, this is too much. So I'm just so going to test here. the waters, test and, the waters, put your toe in. Yes. And once your toes good, you put your foot in. Absolutely. And once your foot's good. You put your legs in. Yes. And sometimes things will happen through life and you'll see changes in your babies and your toddlers. And it's okay to go back. It's not, once you pass through a stage, it's not gone forever. You tend to revisit it. And so these techniques you might see again in when they start preschool three years later, they need to be in something smaller. These are signals that our kids are sending us. And if we can be aware, it supports their emotional development and gives them strength. If we miss some of them and they become overwhelmed, we'll see that tantrum from the overwhelmment, but 
we don't think to go back into a smaller environment. Right. The tantrum or the shutdown. Yes. Right? Yes. And then you've missed that opportunity because every new environment is anxiety producing. Absolutely. Every new environment. And wading through that anxiety is how we learn to do the next thing, right? Yeah. If we're always mollycoddled and we don't have to do anything that makes us uncomfortable, well, then what the heck are you going to do when you get in third grade, right? Absolutely. So you have to find a process that works for your child on whatever level they can tolerate. And like you say, you may get to level six and then start preschool where there's a whole different sensory environment and people and all that going on. And you go, whoa, okay. Now we need to dial it back, maybe back to step four so that we can go through step four and five, maybe more quickly than we did the time before, but so we can get to eight and not back to zero. And kids need that flexibility out of their parents, their caregivers to build up that safety, to build up that resilience, that grit. And it is to me, a very natural progression. If I stop working out, I don't go back to the level five class. I go back to the level one class if I haven't worked out in six months, right? Like, right. so this is very normal human behavior, but the process of life and what should be done is out there and it's its own machine. And not all kids can work in that manner. And what's important is what they need, their individual needs. And we need to be watching that behavior. Have you noticed, you know, as the kids get a bit older when they're toddlers, what sleeping patterns and potty training might look like? Yes. Different from typical kids? Yes. With toddlers, they can be very dependent still on a security object. For instance, not, hey, it's nap time, let's get your blanket. But if I'm going to go out to the grocery store with mom, I have to, for my breathing, be able to have that blanket with me or that stuffed animal. It is an object that supports their being in the world. And being more independent than clinging on to mom. Absolutely. It's I a can step. sit in the basket. I can be separated, not by too much space, uh-huh. but I have this thing that makes me feel more secure in my body entering a situation that I'm not comfortable with. Absolutely. They're telling you I'm not comfortable and this is what makes me comfortable. And it is a necessary object in every environment and interactions. So that transition behavior can be a sign. They will, toddlers, let's say, will stand. If there's five toddlers and someone is offering them popsicles, This toddler tends to stand in the peripheral of the group. 
they're okay waiting for their popsicle till the end because they're not going to, they're not comfortable busting their way to the front of the group. They might they're even- like They're kind of watching the protocol of the whole situation yes. to see if they even want a popsicle. Absolutely. Do I want to do what it takes to get, get a popsicle or forget the popsicle, I'm out of here. Absolutely. Is it is it worth, worth it? it? And when the group has their popsicles and those five toddle away, yours might be standing there and they're waiting for that person to hand them the popsicle rather than walk up and engage, re- engage, reach their hand out for the popsicle. They are once again using that space to keep them safe, to keep them comfortable in the situation. And do you notice, have you noticed with the people you've worked with that at this stage, there might be some sleep disturbance at a young age? Yes. And sleep disturbance, I think is a hard one for parents because as your baby grows, they might wake up, they might need a extra feeding in the night or those kind of things. But for sleep disturbance, what you're, what a lot of parents see is that your baby's tired. It's bedtime. You put them down that first hour, maybe even two hours, they're restless. They're sleeping, but they're going from one side of the crib to the other side of the crib. Some will even sit up. Their eyes will be closed, but they'll just sit up. They're not restful. They're not peaceful. And that in itself is shortening their sleep time, right? So they can be cranky the next morning. They, those things are sleep disturbances. And sometimes that even carries on. Oh, yes. You know, elementary, you know, we we see that later as well. But maybe if parents kind of think about it when their kid's a younger kid, Mm -hmm. these sort of flags go up, right? Yeah. You have a couple flags. I mean, maybe one of the things is like, okay, that's fine. But you see a couple of these things, you're not too sure. You might want to keep a closer eye on it. Absolutely. The sooner you can get your child, what your child needs to be able to progress in life, the better it's going to be for everyone. Absolutely. You don't hear a lot of doctors at toddler stages telling you about sleep disturbances. They sort of chop it up to, you know, babies, right? Babies wake up and this is what you do. Well, babies have nightmares. Toddlers have night terrors and monitoring and even keeping a little bit of like a data log. If you notice it a couple of times is, can be really helpful for parents because you might be able to go back and say, wow, we had the family over to the house and the toddler went to bed a little bit late and there was a lot going on. And that seems to be the time that they wake up at night having a nightmare. Yeah. And if you can identify some of those things, you can better plan for them or plan around them, actually. Absolutely. They might need to start their quiet time earlier. 
They might need the event at your house to end an hour earlier so that they have more of that connection time with you in order to lower the sensory stimulation that they've had from that evening or from that event in order to settle themselves enough to go to sleep. Peacefully. Peacefully and restfully. And this kind of data for parents can be vital when and if it continues for extended periods of time, because you can go back and say, she's having nightmares at 18 months old for two to three times a week. What happened on those days? Where were we? What were we doing? Right. But you don't always in a busy life remember those details, which is why if you just jot down a few notes about these things, then they're there if you ever need to piece them together. Absolutely. And what about potty training? What, What have you talked to parents about in relationship to potty training? There is one that's really, if you can keep the data, even if you talk it into your phone. Just a little voice message, you know, Wednesday, the second, because potty training for kids that might be a little anxious or a little, have a little bit higher stress level can be a long and inconsistent process. You are doing pretty well. They are getting it. You know, you've tried the rewards and and that's going great. And then they'll be playing and have an accident. And you think, oh my gosh, what's going on? Like we, this is unusual, right? Well, what's happened is that they have either refocused into something so engaging that they forget that they, you know, what's going on inside their body. Um, So maybe they've lost that connection because they're, Attention and energy is on something else. Absolutely. Although I'm sure that's very common for kids who are younger, you're talking about kids who are beyond that particular developmental stage. Yes. I'm talking, you know, we've been potty training four to six months and, and this will occur. You will be somewhere and they start, maybe you go out of town for the weekend and they have more accidents regularly. And then this continues when you get home. Um, and you're like, okay, yeah, we were out of town, but now we're home. We're doing what we normally do. It takes them time to get back in that groove. It's almost like, okay, we have to go once again in our step progression, if we want to use that as a gauge, right? Like we have to go back to step Two, to get her or him more in the habit of doing this. Right. So like maybe before you had this event, you were at stage five or six. Yes. And then all of a sudden it's like, what's going on? What's going on? And maybe you dial it back. Absolutely. For a while until we once again master step two and can move to step three, four, five once again. Yes. And parents that have kids that can be a little bit more anxious or 
if you're looking back, if you have a second grader and you're looking back, if you can identify, wow, really, we were on and off potty training for a year, two years. That is not unusual for kids that have some anxieties or might in the future in first, second grade, be having some struggles adapting to school or sensory issues, those kind of things. So that's why it's important to always keep data as well. Because when you look back, these can be signals of things that might be coming in your future. Right. And even though you might not, it might amount to nothing. Great. Absolutely. If it amounts to something and you need to talk to professionals, you can lay out a history with some detail that you might not otherwise have if you didn't just jot some notes down. Absolutely. And, And ultimately, this history for all children is very important. It can tell us things. It tells us their story, their their individual story. Absolutely. So when we go on to a preschool kid, we still see sometimes the separation difficulties that look maybe a little differently than a typical preschool kid, right? And we might see the continued parallel play as opposed to diving straight into group play, right? Yes. And they might get themselves comfortable at school, but need that primary teacher or aid or person in a school setting in a different way than typical kids might be able to acclimate to a group or a group environment. Absolutely. Parents can sometimes find that, okay, it's time for that child to go to preschool even two days a week. And they will find that primary person in that preschool. So that's a behavior that they've had at home. And now they've been able to transfer it into that preschool environment. But in order to actually make the transition, right? Absolutely. They know I'm not getting out of preschool, right? Mom's going to work. So whatever's going on, this is where I have to be. And the only way that I can physically keep myself here and in one piece is I need a safety net. Yes. And I, I'm going to make a primary person here. As a parent, you can sometimes see if that, that person might be absent that day. They get a, they've had a really rough day at school. They might not sleep that night. These can be signs of that primary person not being there for support for that child. It can be where months into school that your child still needs to be sitting on the lap of that aide or teacher. The environment as a whole for them at that time just might be too much. And it's okay to have these discussions with your kids' preschool teachers Because not all kids can handle two days of preschool at two and a half. And And not all schools, not all preschools can give the kind of care that particular kid may want, may need to be successful. And we don't want to keep our kids home and separated if we don't have to, but finding a location that might be able to better 
fit. Yes. To help that child acclimate. Because then once they get acclimated, maybe to that smaller environment, that's more protected, that can help them get a foot in the water. Then at some point we might transition them to a bigger one. And, you know, we've done that a lot with kids um, who are highly behavioral kids Mm. who have been kicked out of classes, you know, tried to be expelled in kindergarten because they're little kids with big behaviors, you know, destroying classrooms, fighting, kicking, running, whatever. Yes. And when we try to reshape those behaviors, we take them to a one-on-one environment. Yes. Where they get very familiar with their one-on-one teacher and they have a one-on-one behaviorist and it's a very protected cocoon. The next step is to take their protected cocoon and do it in a classroom. So they're still with their protected cocoon team, but they're just doing it around other people. So they get more acclimated to what's going on. And then removing their teacher for a little bit and letting the kid take some instruction from the main teacher. Yes. It's a methodical process. And sometimes we have to start that methodical process at a much younger age than anybody ever noticed or anticipated. Absolutely. And to be able to think as a parent in this way, to have the knowledge as a preschool mom, rather than looking back as a second grade mom, can help the labels that sometimes these kids get labeled with the difficulties in environments and tying this back into what we discussed before with the babies, with the activities, you know, and having those other babies come over or in the preschool, starting an activity with one teacher over here and then engaging with the other kids coming over. These are just techniques that can support our kids and give them a better chance of being successful. At any age. At any age. Right. At so any if the stage. child needs it, if the child is, is one of these kids who might need this extra support, the earlier we start the extra support, probably mm-hmm. the less time they're going to need the extra support. Exactly. And it is okay to not follow the push of the pressure and the grit and your kids should be able to do this. They're in preschool, right? Your kid doesn't need to fit fit a square peg into a round hole. Absolutely. And we're not going to do that with children. We're going to try to figure out how, how do we get my kid? How do we get this individual child prepared for their next step in life? And what does that take? Absolutely. You can't, like you say, think, well, this is a cookie cutter approach. And just because 99% of the kids can do it doesn't mean we're going to stuff that 1% through the wrong hole. Eventually it's going to burst. Yes. And what happens is then now that child, that toddler has taken on even more emotions, more sensory overload. And their little being is holding even more. Of course, they're going to possibly act out more or or struggle for longer because they need more support. And that's okay. 
They just need us to recognize that for them, this is their process and their training and they will get there, but they might have to do it at a slower pace. There are places and there are people that you can find to support your child. If where they are, that preschool, that daycare, whatever is causing them a struggle, it's not the right place for them to be. The other thing also that I have seen in representing clients with anxiety and autism, which, you know, anxiety is also assumed in autism Uh oftentimes, is that many of these kids are very bright. However, their anxiety goes into overdrive when there's an expectation placed on them. So even though, you know, at home, Johnny knows his colors, Johnny can do his colors, Right. And Johnny's now in preschool or kindergarten and asked his colors and he can't do his colors. Yes. And everyone wants what's going on. Why can't he do his colors? We, you, you think he can do his colors and you know, he can do his colors. It's not about the colors, right? It's about moving through the anxiety of this child thinking I can't do it. Oh, or it's too hard or holy cow, look at all these questions on a piece of paper. I can never answer all those questions. So breaking it down in manageable pieces for that particular child. Yes. Yes. And these are little people adventuring out into the world of emotions and activities and input that they've not had before. And they need to be taught and understood so that they can be open to learning. Because what happens is if they are anxious or they are overwhelmed, that is shutting down the part of their brain for learning. You know, I had a wonderful psychologist explain this to an IEP team once. Mm. And he said, Kurt Kikis, and I use this all the time. A, a child with anxiety is like trying to merge onto a freeway. Yes. When all the cars are stopped, no matter how fast your car can go. If you're stuck in that traffic, trying to get on a freeway, your car's not going to be going at all. So no matter how bright these kids are, or no matter what they know, when the anxiety kicks in, the access to what they know or to learning, boom, shuts off. Absolutely. And while that's a physiological thing that's going on, it is also a, you will see it behaviorally. You will see it in the look of that child that we can pay attention to and slow down, make smaller chunks of things, scaffold these activities to a level where they are successful so that the success and the positive feelings have a chance of being what they experience rather than I'm, I have a sensory issue or I'm, I'm sensitive. I now go to preschool. I'm overwhelmed. Now you're asking me to sit quietly and I just want to run. It's compounding. In the behavior world is building behavioral momentum. Absolutely. You start with a small task that you know that this child can do right then and there. 
Yes. So that they get the confidence to move on to the next thing. Absolutely. You know, they can do that once you build behavioral momentum. So the child, then their anxieties decreased a little bit They're They feel like, okay, you know, I'm doing okay. I, I can do this. Then you can introduce maybe something that is going to be new novel or a little bit more difficult. Some kids can't just have you put the worksheet down and have a teacher say, okay, now we're going to learn addition. No, no, no. I can't learn this. No. Ab- Even I already know it. Right. Absolutely. And in preschool and in education in the system that we have right now, there's a lot of, well, your child is five, they have to go to kindergarten or, <laughs> or these these should have, would have, could have that, that we as parents feel we need to follow. And what happens is that if you are observing your child and, and watching these nuances, sometimes in toddlerhood, you can see that um, maybe that preschool teacher will say, you know what, we put crayons on the table and every day we want them to try to, you know, draw a circle or color something in. And Johnny wants to run over to the other side of the room and play with trucks. We can't get this child to sit at the table. But Johnny's not doing his circles. No, Johnny's not doing his circles. And every time there's some sort of writing activity, he wants nothing Johnny's to do. out. He's hey, out. Peace out. Or every crayon we give to this child gets broken in half because they're the pressure they're using to try to make them draw is unusual. And so he doesn't want to draw anymore because the crayons always break. These yeah, and also because what kind of emotion is he holding break crayon? He's saying, I'm trying to do what you're asking of me, but this is how it feels to me, yes, I have to exert so much effort to try to live up to your expectation that it's too much for me. Exactly. And I'm out. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to throw a tantrum. I'm yeah, going and maybe to if I throw a tantrum, you'll call my mom and she'll pick me up. Ugh. And then tomorrow morning, I could just start throwing tantrums and I get to go home. And I don't have to deal with your stupid crayon circles. I can just be where I feel safe. Because this, I can, I'm a little person and I can only handle so much. And these expectations are a little too big for me right now. And this, sometimes you'll hear preschool teachers call it activity avoidance or some certain things will happen and they'll go back into parallel play. They're sort of in the group, but they're really tuned into something else. Right, They're reverting back to something that is comfortable to them in their space. Yes. And learning to do it sort of in a way that kind of looks normal. Yes. And they're trying to make the best of both worlds, right? Like I want to do well, but I'm not feeling like I can do well with this activity. Right. I can't do it the way you want me to do it, but I know from the past, if I do it over here by myself and I'm kind of close to that group, then that's, I'm probably going to get a pass. Exactly. Pass for that. No problem. 
And that's a way of a child scaffolding their environment for themselves. They're saying, okay, I can't do that at a level nine, right? On a scale of one to 10, let's say. So I'm going to go over here where I can be by myself and maybe I could do it at a six, right? Or a four. So, or maybe I can grit through it over here while everyone else is doing it over there, but then maybe we're going to change to something where this part's over. Yes. And then I can just sit with my emotion. And children scaffold environments you put them in, like the babies that we've started this with, by staying with that mother or that primary person on the lap, by observing the rooms. They're breaking down environments that we put them in into chunks that they can absorb and observe and then feel safe with, and then maybe go out into, they automatically go into um, self-preservation in however they have to do it. Right. And whatever they know. Absolutely. And so that self-preservation is human nature and it is shown in babies and toddlers and preschoolers in behavior primarily. Right. Flight fight, freeze. Yep. That's, that's human nature. That's our instincts. When presented with something difficult, scary, emotional, fight, flight, freeze. And those are signs and important information for parents, all parents of all kids. Typical, neurotypical, right? Needs, whatever. But it's one of those things that unfortunately as a parent, we don't hear a lot of people talking about. And when you do think about it and look back, your kids in the second, third grade, and you're like, wow, I wish I'd known. I wish I, I wish someone had told me that these things were his way or her way of telling me she just needed to go at a little slower pace. Right. And these things, if maybe they were addressed, then wouldn't accumulate into what we're dealing with now. Absolutely. And then you see these parents who have tremendous amount of guilt for not recognizing it, which that's a whole nother conversation we can have on another day. But, you know, Leslie, I really enjoyed this chat with you. And I think that having a way for parents to actually look at this differently might help them to early intervention, right? To self-intervention, early intervention, and to make things a little more smooth for their family, for their child to be able to engage in the next step. So really, I thank you for being here. I thank you for imparting this information. I know you work with many, many people and you've talked to many, many parents and you've seen many, many things. So having the benefit of that information and knowledge is invaluable to people starting this process. So thank, thanks for being here today. Sure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to IEPs and more with Kathy Greco. If you have questions, guest suggestions, or comments, you can reach out to Kathy at Kathy at GrecoAdvocacy.com. No part of this podcast can be reused or rebroadcast without written consent. Copyright 2021, 
IEPs, and more. Thanks for listening.